when you have both together, like you can get, you get alignment, you get execution, you get change, you get progress. But how to get both of those together? Hey, this is Jasmine, and I'm the host of Rebuilding Government. Today's guest is Zach Bookman, the co-founder and CEO of OpenGov, a cloud platform that supports government budgeting, performance, communications, and reporting. Government accounting probably isn't something that we think about too often. It's probably not the flashiest thing in politics, but it's still the system that allocates every dollar that goes to roads, schools, and so many other everyday interactions with government. Yet before platforms like OpenGov, the system managing our taxpayer dollars didn't work so well. Government tech lagged decades behind the rest of industry. So to learn more about this, we'll chat about Zach's early career in foreign policy, why bureaucracy seems so slow, and how to foster a culture of genuine civic engagement. Let's get into it. So welcome to Rebuilding Government. Thanks, Jasmine. Really happy to be here. So my first question for you is actually a little bit of a pointed one, but why do you think that people don't believe in government right now? I think trust is at an all-time low, according to different polls. I think at the presidential level, people feel like government maybe isn't working for them. Uh, everyone likes, you know, has, has read about scandals. Government is a really hard and complicated business, if you will, or enterprise, because you're essentially operating in a glass house where everyone's capable of throwing stones. We actually at OpenGov have a lot of empathy for our customers because their operating environment, unlike a private company, is really difficult. They have to hold public meetings. They have to publish all their documents and minutes. And everyone gets a say. And decisions are made much more often on consensus than they are you know, in a, in a kind of hierarchical command and control setup. And so it's a hard environment. And that produces a lot of what you might call sometimes bureaucracy or slowness. And a lot of people don't really understand the structural design of our nation's government. Now, OpenGov works on state and local governments. We, we, we work with about 2,000 state and local governments. We don't work at all at the federal level, and we don't work in politics. But we do see the machinery of state and local government up really close. And I would note a few things. It's not designed to move fast. It's designed to be deliberate. It's not designed to deliver quarterly, deliver quarterly results. It's designed to deliver sustainability over years or even generations. And so I think a lot of people often forget uh, how hard it is to manage a community or run a government and the way that we as a polity have set these entities up. That makes a lot of sense. Um, there is a lot going on behind the scenes and a big part of why I'm hosting this podcast is because I, I think people could have more empathy and perhaps a greater desire to join the efforts if they knew all of this machinery, as you're saying, that was happening that makes democracy run and so forth. So you clearly chose um, be, be co-founding a company as your path towards uh, restoring that trust in government and helping that behind the scenes work run smoother. But you had a pretty interesting career before that. And I was really hoping that you could walk me through your career path and sort of what motivated the various pivots you made into different industries. Sure. Happy to. 
if it's helpful, I'll even start kind of from the beginning. I, I grew up near government. I, my father worked at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, D.C. I grew up in Maryland. And government is to D.C. what technology is to the Bay Area. It's kind of everywhere. And although I was an entrepreneur from a young age, doing things like, you know, lawn business and anything I could get my hands on in terms of, you know, making money or having the freedom of, you know, starting an enterprise, I was influenced. And I studied government in college at the University of Maryland. I then went to law school at Yale and I did a master's degree in public administration at the Harvard Kennedy School. And after, after grad school, I went to Mexico and studied corruption and transparency in the Mexican government on a Fulbright fellowship. I then had a brief law career. I was a law clerk for a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And then a trial litigator at Kecker Van Nest and Peters, a boutique litigation firm in San Francisco. And I had a fascinating experience in each of these uh, areas, which I could be happy to talk more about or offline. Uh, but then I went overseas to Afghanistan. And I served as an advisor to United States Army General H.R. McMaster on the anti-corruption task force, which was a task force set up at the NATO or ISAF headquarters uh, by General Petraeus. And I spent seven months living in half a shipping container. And that's actually when OpenGov was founded. Uh, three co-founders back here in the Bay, all Stanford graduates and technologists. And I was overseas and we got OpenGov off the ground. I came home in the summer of 2012 and I've been working on this ever since. So thematically, I have a background in transparency and anti-corruption thematically, you know, budgeting software and communications and reporting for governments is kind of anti-corruption and transparency. Um, I've always been, you know, worked in and studied uh, government probably most of the past couple of decades. But what we're doing now, believe it or not, is kind of the hardest of a number of hard and interesting and almost surreal journeys I've had. Um, it might be the most fulfilling and we're moving way beyond, uh, uh, you know, my area of expertise, if you will, just in how deep we go into the data, into the technology and into the operations of these governments. So we're hiring just lots of experts and uh, just building, building, building. So it's been a super exciting journey that feels like it leverages lots of my skills and education, but push has pushed me way beyond that's a super cool story. So how exactly did it work to start OpenGov from a shipping container in Afghanistan? So to be fair, a great deal of the credit for starting OpenGov goes to our co-founders. Uh, Joe Lonsdale uh, is a co-founder of Palantir, and he's our chairman. Um, uh, Dakin Sloss was a, a Stanford uh, student studying math and physics, and Nate Levine, uh, who was an electrical engineering and computer science student at Stanford. And so they were back on the ground and got things off the ground and, um, you know, worked tirelessly and brought creativity and genius to the problem spaces. And, you know, we just wouldn't be here without them. I was, you know, it was kind of silly, but I was on cell phones with, you know, Dakin or Nate or Joe with helicopters flying over the head and, um, 
you know, it was, it was a, it was a crazy environment over there. Everyone in green pajamas and guns everywhere. And, you know, almost like out of a movie. Um, but you know, the reality is, uh, you know, folks were back at home making sure this thing got stood up. Mm -hmm. And what year was that? 2012. Okay, so you're pretty early in the remote working trends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it seems like you talked a lot about learning about corruption, learning about transparency, and I imagine that's where a lot of OpenGov's products come in to help governments become more transparent. So could you give a quick rundown um, of the software suite and like what exact kinds of products are you all providing for governments? Sure. So we're most well known now as a budgeting company. So our software runs the budgeting process for Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Richmond, Virginia, and Lincoln, Nebraska, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you know, many large state agencies and counties and, and other entities. This is a very complicated process that involves, you know, labor forecasting and personnel costing across, you know, all the employees of a government. And most people think, you know, hey, how much does, you know, the fire chief make? Oh, 200K. Well, the reality is whatever the salary might be, or even, you know, whatever the salary plus, you know, whatever other bonus or something might be, the cost of an employee is often 50, sometimes even 100% of the salary. And it's extremely complicated. And a, an employee may have 10, 20 plus cost elements. And each element might have an equation attached to it. Like in year two, it goes up by this much. In year three, by that much. If you're in this bargaining unit or you speak Spanish or you are a certified EMT or anything. And so this stuff gets very complicated and it's all run through OpenGov. Um, same for the budget proposals. Everyone who spends money in a government can propose how much they spend in the system. And it all rolls up to the budget director and they can do approvals and so on. One of the very cool innovations is every dollar that's allocated can be tied to a performance metric, a council priority, a KPI, if you will, a key performance indicator, and then tracked across the whole enterprise. So you see where all the money goes and what you get for it. And then many people know us for our transparency and open data. And of course, any report that's created in the system can be shared with the staff, with the council, or with the whole community, or even the whole world. And that's kind of a, a snapshot, if you will, of the suite as it stands today. We have very ambitious plans. So when we talk again, I'll fill you in on some very exciting new products and acquisitions that we have in store. I'll also take a moment here to give you the evolution if it's helpful. We went, you know, right after the recession, think, think back 2010, 11, three governments went bankrupt in California. A dozen were predicted to go bankrupt. Really? The Great Recession had just wreaked havoc, right? The governments were totally upside down. And we were kind of coming of age, Joe, Bacon, Nate, and I, and, and, and others, with a, with a nonprofit that was actually started out of Stanford called California Common Sense, being like, how is this possible? How, how do governments, our bedrock institutions, go bankrupt? You know, almost like startups sometimes run out of money. And remember, Stockton, Vallejo, and San Bernardino, by the way, went bankrupt. Wow. And, and we started talking with some budget directors, and city managers, and the like at Palo Alto, even people in the state of California. And we said, hey, give us your budget data, and we'll help you drill through it and see trends. And 
You can report on it using, you know, then new web-based technologies, things like Tableau even. Mm. And they said, wow, that sounds really useful. How do we get to our budget data? And we said, what do you mean? How do you get us your budget data? You're the freaking budget director. <laughs> and, and they said, well, come sit with us and look what we're dealing with. And we sat with them and we saw these ERP systems, these back office accounting and other key systems. And they had green screens. They had white screens. City of Palo Alto had paid $10 million for an ERP system from a German software conglomerate named SAP. And it was delivered on 20 disks. Disks. And the state of California was using an accounting system that ran on COBOL. Your classmates who are studying computer science at Stanford, I assume, not only do not study COBOL, I bet many of them don't even know what it is. It was the programming language. I think it was most popular in the 1960s. Oh, wow. Yeah, I have no clue what that is. And yeah, and so these are big, complicated systems. So there's a reason they got so aged and so outdated. But we saw that and we said, wow, this is a travesty. And a lot of, you know, there's plenty of problems in government. There's might be bureaucracy or politics or institutional incentives, but there's clearly a technology problem. And we saw lots of hardworking, smart, dedicated public servants. These are accountants or lawyers or professional managers or, or even, you know, analysts in all the various departments. And they're banging their heads against the wall with this really old tech. And we said this, Joe had the foresight, if you will, to say, look, when there's this huge gap between how an organization is supposed to be running and how it currently runs, that gap or that white space is the potential for a company. And we just stuck in. We started talking with lots of experts and we started building a product strategy. And that went almost in reverse of what I described, transparency and then reporting, operational reporting, and then open data and then budgeting and then workforce planning and that you know we're just trying to expand as rapidly as possible uh, and we have major ambitions to become kind of the premier cloud provider of you know top flight software for these state and local government agencies mm -hmm. so when you were working with these government officials trying to help them navigate these crazy budget systems did you i'm sure you got a lot of intuitions as to why the system was so outdated and why it was so slow before Sure. Um, look, governments have what's called a slow sales cycle. That is, you know, how quickly they can make a decision and get through purchasing to buy a new product. That is the bane of a startup technology company, right? right? Because if you start your company, you want to get some customers adopting it as soon as possible, get some revenue going, get the feedback loops going. So it is, it is, has some natural barriers to entry. As in the average startup will just die on the vine because they won't show enough progress if they're raising venture capital and that kind of thing. So it's funny when I was raising money out here with Joe um, and, and Bacon and Nate, a lot of people would like laugh at us. You know, you're in, I came to Silicon Valley to get away from government. Why would I want to invest in a company working on government? And as we've achieved, you know, uh, some measure of success, we've changed some people's opinions. Other people are like, hey, look, I don't want anything to do with it. But quite a lot of people, obviously, we've raised a great deal of capital. We've, we've raised $100 million to date about um, and more, you know, more on the way. Um, and, you know, I think people are saying, wow, you can actually drive revenue. This is a huge space. Tons of money is being spent by these agencies. 
and they have great needs and you can win big deals. And once you get in with your software, if you do a great job and you service them well, and it's a well-designed product where people are using it and it's addressing mission critical problems and processes, then maybe you can stay there for a long time. And in, in most enterprise SaaS, that software as a service, uh, you know, you might model a customer lasting three, four, five years. In government, you might have a customer lasting seven, 10, 15 plus years. And so they can eventually be really good and really profitable customers. I think the reason these systems got so old is the range of government needs is huge. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, a government is like a holding company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you'd never, you'd never go to a venture capitalist or go home and talk to, you know, friends, family, or others you might want to raise money from and say, Hey, I've got a great business idea. I want to provide fire services. I want to lend library books. I want to pave roads and process sewage. It'd be like, huh? Sounds like a terrible business idea. (laughs) Well, the reality is a general purpose city does all of those things and many more. It, It often has eight, 10, sometimes 20 different business lines all under one umbrella. And so the range of software needed to do all of those processes, all the accounting, all the budgeting, all the workflows is huge. And the public over time has crafted really Byzantine and complicated rules to prevent corruption. Uh, but these are rules that tell governments how they can purchase, how they can make decisions, how they can allocate money. And so it makes it hard to even make a decision. It makes it hard to purchase. Um, and I think that has prevented competition in the space, but it's also meant, you know, it's really slowed things down. So if the average replacement cycle for technology in the private sector is, you know, five or 10 years or 15 years, it's, you know, add five or 10 years in government. So mm-hmm. it's pretty quickly, you get systems that are 20 plus years out of date. So how is, given the complexity of these systems, given all the different functions, all the different software products that you would have to build, how is OpenGov able to surmount these challenges and to overcome them and to convince these governments with their long, complicated sales cycles that you, a new player, a startup, were worth buying from? So we developed what you might call a wedge strategy. Another way to do this business would have been to raise all this money hire as many engineers as possible and build a system in quiet and then come out, come out with it fully baked, which probably would have been a disaster because you wouldn't know the exact requirements. You need to work hand in hand with the customers. Mm -hmm. Instead, we, we went in with transparency. We sold it as a low price and essentially upselling new products that we've developed in conjunction with all these uh, beta customers and others that we bring in. Uh, We've been selling these new products as upsells to generate you know, higher average selling prices and, and grow the account. Um, we've had a lot of fortitude. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've spent a lot of investor capital. So I think you know, if we continue to produce success, we'll look really smart. Oh, wow, they created this wedge strategy with transparency, then they went to budgeting, then they moved deeper into the, you know, the major systems and that's how they won. And of course, if we don't, pull it off or we stumble, uh, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we won't look so good, but that's part of the risk and part of the excitement and part of the challenge of, you know, a, a startup enterprise and particularly one in an old line, 
uh, industry, like government. Mm-hmm. That makes but sense. I can say it's, it's getting really exciting. Our deal sizes have grown dramatically. About 2,000 governments across the country are using our software. We've attracted a lot of top talent from the industry. Many customers kind of ask for jobs and have come aboard. And, um, and, and the software that's being shipped is producing a lot of ROI in a lot of different agencies of different shapes, sizes, sub-verticals. So it's an incredibly exciting time at the company. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're actually getting ready to do our Series D. So um, in my opinion, it's looking a lot more likely that we're going to produce some great outcomes uh, than, than Stumble. But I can say I've made, as CEO, I've made probably every mistake in the book. So I do talk <laughs> with other founders and share some war stories and battle scars and try to help them not make the same mistakes that I've made. Could you tell me about maybe one of the biggest challenges that you encountered? Well, it's all people, pretty much. Um, strategy is important. People and culture is really key. Um, you got to hire great people. And every founder, every manager even will tell you it's really, really hard. And there's a fairly high uh, fail rate. And sometimes there's great people and they don't fit the culture or they're not right for the role. And it's extremely costly because it's spent not just money, but so much time training people. Um, I'm really proud of the team that we are building. Um, and we've got an incredible array of talent. David Reeves is our pre- president. He was the SVP of sales for Zora, which went public last year. Uh, Paul Denton, our CFO, been involved in many companies, including OpenDNS, which sold to Cisco for $630 million. Um, Deepak Allure is leading our engineering team, and he was vice president of engineering for Anaplan, which went public last year. Just a just a taste of the type of executives that are at OpenGov and building out their own management teams and helping people grow in their careers and tackle these super hard challenges, whether they're technical or business. Um, so that's been a really key element. Um, I would say I've learned a heck of a lot about enterprise software, uh, and I started out as Kind of a kind of a newbie, if you will. Um, I knew a fair amount about state and local government. Actually, I knew a lot more about kind of constitutional law and you know uh, theoretical and uh, foreign affairs and other issues. But um, I've learned a lot about state and local government. But I've learned even more about you know how you have to get higher and higher deal sizes to pay for your sales and marketing expenses, and how we have to you know really control our burn rate so that. We're, you know, investing in the right areas and not in the wrong areas. And, and I've watched a lot of our top executives and managers, you know, hire some amazing people and build out our training programs and sales processes and field operations and our engineering processes and product management and design. And we just have all these functions. And it's really, it's really been neat and gratifying for me to look out and say, wow, like there are just so many people at this company who are better in their jobs than I would be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's really key, I think, to, to get the talent in and then align it on the shared mission. Right. And that alignment is what produces speed and execution. And speed is just critical. And strategy is not worth much if you can't execute on it. So would you say that most employees who join OpenGov, are they coming from backgrounds in government or uh, related to it? Or are they totally different sectors just for some reason, we're drawn to the kind of work that you're doing. So I'd say most employees who now join OpenGov come from enterprise software companies. They bring specialized skill sets. 
whether it's data integrations or, you know, writing code or, you know, finance and accounting or what have you, most of the, you know, new hires have, you know, prestigious backgrounds from great companies. Um, we do have two other really valued general types of employees. Uh, one are, you know, financial experts or other types of experts, often from government. And they bring a tremendous amount of skill and knowledge to us. They help inform our product, our deployment methodology, and just make customers happy. And two is we have a lot of incredible, young, mission-driven talent. Uh, you know, even people for whom this is their first job. Uh, we've hired many brilliant young people from Stanford, as well as, you know, other great schools. Um, uh, and And it's a real diverse, workforce, I would say, um, diverse in age and uh, talent mix and knowledge and backgrounds. And it's just, it's, it's exciting to draw on that and align it and uh, have everyone kind of crash together on this, what we think of as maybe the most important mission to power more effective and accountable government. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, so I wanted to chat a little bit about uh, the state of government and gov tech in the U.S. more broadly outside of OpenGov. Um, so sure. my first question is, how bad is corruption inside the U.S.? Because it's something that a lot of times I feel like people see as that's something that happens in authoritarian governments. But I honestly, if you ask me, I don't know how much corruption there is inside like my city government or my state government. So my guess is your hometown is or was probably not that corrupt. Everyone likes to talk about corruption or waste or fraud or abuse in government. Again, because I think it's, it's easy to throw stones. Mm -hmm. And you even hear some people say, oh, if I was running that, almost as if there's like a line item in the budget that says waste or <laughs> fraud. And if you just took a pair of scissors and cut the line item out, you'd, have, you'd solve all the problems. Yeah, solved it. Uh, all the problems. <laughs> yeah, just cut, the, just cut that line item out. Well, it's actually way more complicated than that. And, and, and for most of those folks who might be disgruntled, I'd encourage them to pick up the budget document. This is a published document. The government is legally obliged to publish it. It's often hundreds of pages. It details all of their operations, all of their expenditures, all of their planned expenditures. And, you know, if you dork out on it, like we do at OpenGov, it tends to be pretty fascinating. And there's, there's not one of those line items. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't terrible examples. There are in the private sector, there are in the public sector, the Bell Californias. And, you know, there was that town in Illinois where the woman bilked it for just millions and millions of dollars and was buying racehorses. I forget the name. Oh. Um, but I think it was their auditor. It was a real, real disaster. These things happen. What I think happens more often, though, is you get really divisive, complicated politics where people aren't working together for the best interest of the community. And they kind of grind the operation to a halt. You see this in companies, too. If the E-team isn't aligned or the CEO and the board are fighting with each other or the board's fighting amongst itself, the company can go straight down or it can waste time, can waste capital. That happens in government a lot. I think you definitely see technology problems. We're even seeing ransomware attacks, which are super debilitating and pretty scary. 
um, we're seeing catastrophes too. Um, you know, Flint, Michigan with its water and Baltimore for a variety of reasons. And there was corruption there and the mayor stepped down and so on. So, you know, not to trivialize, these are super complicated problems, existential for the communities that, that face them. But my read is actually, you know, there's a lot of good-hearted city managers, county executives, and they're, they're, you know, they go to work early in the morning and they go home late, believe it or not. Um, and they're trying to do a good job for the community they serve and they're working in the public interest. And they're not just there because they couldn't get another job or because just the benefits. Um, it's because I think they like the work or they're inspired by the mission or they love their community. And so I, we actually see that much, much more often. Now, I have worked, and I'm not going to name names, we have worked with governments who are exceedingly difficult to work with, or they do things in a way where it really does raise eyebrows. So I won't tell you that there isn't corruption or there aren't scandals because we've seen them. Yeah, I remember seeing like, um, I think something on Twitter or something where uh, someone was talking about how, oh, all government officials care about is like getting home at 5 p.m. And that's the attitude of most people in government. And that was really, I don't know, it bothered me a little bit because I had talked to government officials and my impression is that the vast majority of people working there, like you said, um, are public servants who spent a lot, a lot of energy in a pretty difficult space um, putting in that work. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you your thoughts. I mean, I know, oh, yeah. I know in your work, you probably interact with folks. I, I, I also think, I assume you've been humbled maybe a little bit by how complicated the, the problem sets are that need to be solved, mm -hmm. but also how complicated the operating environments are. As in, if you are working in government, it's not so easy to get things done. I mean, yeah. you have to go to a meeting on Tuesday night, tell the whole community, and then let every Tom, Dick, and Harry stand up in a microphone and yell at you. Right, yeah. I mean, like, so again, like I work in emergency management and a lot of disaster management. And so a lot of people at the company I work at are previous or previous emergency management officials, um, like FEMA executives, stuff like that. And the amount of stuff you have to deal with in the environment of like a crisis, whether it's a flood or a hurricane or something that's devastating people, it's chaotic. Everyone's telling you to do a billion things. And it's really difficult to try to think from that mindset because a lot of things that go into a consumer app that someone's just using when they're scrolling on their phone, waiting for the bus is very different from the kinds of stuff that an emergency manager has to do in the middle of a crisis. And so that was definitely humbling. Yep. 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 Yeah. So one of the things that OpenGov makes an intervention into in terms of stuff like transparency and corruption is like the open data stuff. And so I was curious that you have all of this data, all of these spreadsheets, spreadsheets, charts, whatever, and it's public and it's transparent, but who looks at this stuff? Like I understand why it's important to release to the public, but as an ordinary citizen, unless maybe I'm doing a project that's directly related to government budgets, I probably wouldn't go out of my way to like study every single line item on my city's budget. So I'm curious yep. what these open data projects usually turn into and like why they're so useful. So a few things. One, I, um, I think you'd be surprised. It's kind of funny. Uh, you go to some city council meetings, which you can do. These are public buildings, public mm -hmm. meetings. You can walk right in. Um, I don't know where you live, but maybe you live in Palo Alto. You can just walk right in. And you'll actually be surprised that there's a 
fair number of people who show up and they know a great deal about their community. They take real pride, real ownership. They're asking sophisticated questions about where this money's going or that. So yeah, a lot of people feel like not my interest area or I don't have time for this, but um, you know, there are, there are people who take it seriously either as interested citizens or watchdogs or what have you. But two, there was a great city manager who said to me, look, Zach, people typically have this backward. We get the government we deserve. Huh. People like to criticize. They like to talk smack about governments, but they've got it all wrong. They are the government. It's your government. You elect the representatives. Those representatives appoint the CEO, often called a city manager or a county executive or what have you. The county executive appoints his or her staff members. And so a lot of people feel so disenfranchised, I think, or they've become so ignorant as to how these governments are structured that they don't feel any agency or any responsibility. And that's not to say you need to go in and read, you know, bajillions of rows of uh, data or even scrutinize the budget. But it is to say it's not just they and them and there. It's us and we. It's first person. And, and I think that's a pretty powerful way of looking at things. And it's also kind of accurate. We as a community, we as a policy, we as a culture. Now, a third point, I'd basically probably agree with you. I, I don't, uh, well, well, we obviously offer, I, I'd argue we're the, we're the leading open data provider in the country. And we run many of the major city and state portals in the country um, from, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, and Tucson, and uh, seven agency, major state agencies in California, like the California Natural Resources Agency, um, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Richmond, Virginia, and many, many others. Um, I think getting into the workflows so that a government executive or analyst comes to work, and believe it or not, many of these people during budget season, they stay there till 10, 11, 12, 1 in the morning. I've even heard of all-nighters as they, because they're legally obligated to build these budgets. They're super complicated and they're working with really old tools. I'd argue the work that we're doing on the workflows around budgeting and other things is, is more mission critical. It has more end user adoption. Um, but it's a strong stance that a lot of these governments, particularly major cities and states, want to take. We run the portals for Oklahoma and Idaho and West Virginia and Ohio did a major launch of our software, and it took them from 47th most transparent in the nation to number one three years in a row. Wow. And, and I think that the elected officials who are behind that or the appointed officials want to make a strong statement to the community about what they believe in and their alignment with the community and what they want to offer to their citizenry. And there's something very powerful around, you know, that trust that they're trying to build, uh, even if there's not a ton of and user adoption. Although you might be surprised too, and we have user uh, statistics, there's, you know, there's actually a lot of people who go on there, everybody from, you know, bond traders to, you know, just interested parties who are trying to learn more about their own government. So I agree with you. And there's a fair amount of kind of other motivations as well. Okay. That does make sense. Um, so you talked a lot about this sort of um, need to own our government to recognize that in a democracy, 
our government's going to be as good as the work that we as citizens are putting in to vote, to learn about what policies are happening, to know who our representatives are. Uh, I'm curious as to whether you have intuitions as to outside of the internal kind of software work that OpenGov does, how could we build a community or a society where people feel a better sense of ownership over government and therefore more trust in government? Great question. Extremely difficult. <laughs> I, I, this is a question about how you, do, how you build culture. And in my experience working in Mexico and Afghanistan actually taught me a fair amount about culture at that scale. And my opinion and thesis on the matter is that you need both authentic and courageous leadership on the one hand, and you need grassroots civic engagement on the other. Mm. One on its own will not work. Strong leadership with an apathetic public, you're kind of shouting in the wind. And grassroots efforts and civic engagement and involvement without courageous leadership standing up for the right thing or mobilizing people doesn't overcome the inertia of governments and, and even the, the citizenry. When you have both together, like you can get, you get alignment, you get execution, you get change, you get progress. But how to get both of those together? I mean, that's tough. I, I, I went to the Harvard Kennedy School and you know, David Gergen is a big proponent of uh, political leadership and encouraging young people to get involved and to run for office. And it's a noble profession. And being a politician isn't a bad word. And it's a force for good and change. And I, I could sign up for that and subscribe to that. And, and then by the same token, I just admire all the, the, the startups, what you're doing. Uh, all the volunteerism, all of the involvement that we see in our com in, in the communities we work with every day, and I know that every you know every one of those people is making their contribution and working hard at it, and it adds up. And so uh, I, I remain optimistic, but I don't have much more than a few you know few of those generic words on the subject. That's fair, and I mean there are tons of conversations to be had about this subject. And um, I'm sure your perspective is as valuable as many of these others that I'll hope to get in my other conversations. I appreciate it. <laughs> you made a lot of parallels between uh, the government and the private sector, whether it's CEO to city manager or uh, developing a culture of trust or like company culture. I'm curious also, what do you think that perhaps startups could learn from government, their practices? I think there's, it's a cool question. I think there's a lot that governments, of course, can learn from the startup culture, the culture of iteration, the data-driven culture, the culture of speed, mm -hmm. the culture of creativity, the culture of disruption. Um, in reverse, I, I think there's probably a few things. One, inclusivity. Governments, by their nature, are designed to represent everyone. And I know at OpenGov, as well as so many other companies, there's a strong trend toward and, um, and position of inclusiveness, of embracing our diversity and including people, making them uh, not just feel safe, but getting their input and being part of key decisions and direction. That's constitutive of virtually every government. Number two, I think it's 
bringing diverse talent together. So it's a little bit related, but these governments, I mean, you've got so many different skill sets, accountants and lawyers and firefighters and crime fighters and, you know, economic development promotion specialists and all all sorts of uh, skills under one roof, proverbially. And so you kind of need that in a startup as well particularly a vertical startup or, 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 or enterprise software companies or, or others that are solving really hard industry challenges, you have to get experts from the industry and you need people who you need to, you, you need to build a team. And a team isn't just carbon copies of the same person or the same resume or the same skill set. It's a diverse array of skills that have to be brought together and aligned on a shared mission and uh, and driving forward together and i think that you know government requires that and, and some governments do a great job of that i think that's something that startups could draw from i think um there's a lot of parallels believe it or not and mo- most people don't but you know a government is an incorporated body it has a board of directors that's called a council or a board of supervisors or a legislature if you will in a public corporation the board is typically elected by the shareholders. The shareholders in a government are the citizens, you and me. And, and then the board appoints a CEO, city manager, city administrator. Sometimes it's even called CEO. And, and as I said, that person appoints an, uh, an executive staff that as the startup grows and scales, they need to appoint managers, and executives to help lead different functions from sales and business development to marketing to professional services and deployments and you know all, all the whole lifespan of the customer as well as of course the the building of the product and and so I I, I think well there's huge differences in terms of kind of financial motivations namely a, a private sector company a startup wants to build a good you know build and sell a good or service and get revenue for it. A government wants to give away typically goods and services um, and they raise revenue in order to do that. So there's almost like a you know, counterpoint there, but there's lots of parallels and it probably helps you understand government more than it does a startup, but seeing it for what it is as an incorporated entity with a certain structure and a certain mission is kind of interesting. Um, I'll think more on the question. Yeah, that, those are some really good insights. And that's an interesting perspective, I feel like, isn't often considered. So very last thing, super quick. We always do a lightning round. Um, three questions, if you could just answer them in one sentence. First, what's the sure. best book that you've read recently? The best book I've read recently was The Good Earth by Pearl Buck. I think it won the Nobel Prize. I think it was written in 1931 uh, about China. Uh, it's a novel. And uh, I read that just a few weeks ago, and I'll be surprised if it's not the best book I've read all year. Wow. Um, who has been inspiring you lately? My board member, John Chambers. He was kind enough, gracious enough to take me fishing up in Alaska, uh, fly fishing for salmon and trout in the most remote uh, creeks and streams in the Bristol Bay region. And he took his other portfolio company CEOs up to talk about culture and leadership, how to build diverse, inclusive teams, and um, to build trust and alignment in your organization. It's just, it's very inspiring uh, hanging out with him and the other uh, 
other really dynamic uh, CEOs who are trying really hard to build great companies and impact the world in really positive ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, one sentence, I know this is a tough one. Uh, what is your biggest vision or hope for government in a hundred years? I, I love uh, wild natural places. I'm a conservationist, if you will. Um, I like to climb mountains. Uh, I was very fortunate enough to go on a big trip over the new year. I climbed the tallest mountain in Antarctica wow. and the tallest mountain in the Andes. And being a mountaineer and spending time on glaciers and in wild places, even on the trip with uh, Chambers up in Alaska, see the impact of uh, environmental destruction and global warming. How, how, whatever the cause is, you, you see the impact very clearly. And uh, I hope in 100 years that uh, we still have you know, amazing wild natural places and we find ways to not just use them constructively, but, you know, allow others to enjoy them and experience them and treasure them. Um, I think we've got tremendous natural resources and call me a conservationist. Yeah. So that, that'd probably be the first thing that comes to mind. I'm also um, a big believer in justice writ large, if you will, and criminal justice as a field is of interest to me. I've been teaching a class on Sunday afternoons this summer uh, at the San Quentin prison on American government. Uh, And it's very fascinating to interact with a, you know, a set of subset of society that don't get to interact with every day and has a very different perspective often, but also a lot of thoughtful and uh, smart people among the inmates. And so that's been a really interesting experience. And then, um, you know, I could talk more about that, but I, I think, uh, you know, criminal justice reform is something I care about. And the third is more effective and accountable government. I, I love what we're doing at OpenGov, and I, uh, I intend to work really hard and hopefully succeed. And I'd love in 100 years for governments to be, you know, almost where they were. And I, I, this may sound funny, but 100 years ago or 80 years ago, governments had a much, much better reputation than they do today. Many of the best and brightest people went to work in government. Mm-hmm. and schools like the Kennedy School were set up, or the Woodrow Wilson School were set up to raise a generation of public leaders. And the phrase good enough for government is now a pejorative. 80 years ago, it, came, it, 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 was a, it was a world where a vendor had to be so good as to be good enough for government. And that's when our post offices were made of marble and gilded and um, things worked better. There was a lot more trust. And so uh, that's, you know, aside from the other things I mentioned, that's, that's certainly super important. I wish we had more uh, trust in government. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having this chat with me today. I've learned a lot. Um, hope, hope it was enjoyable for you to share about the work that you all are doing. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm super honored and grateful to, uh, to be a part of this and admire what you're doing and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Zach. Hey, this is Jasmine again. If you want to learn more about what people are doing to rebuild government, please hit like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Go to rebuildinggovernment.com or tweet us at rebuildinggovernment. If you care what I have to say, my Twitter is at jasminewsen. I'm always looking for friends and feedback. This podcast is part of the Teske Media Network. You can check out other shows about the world's most impactful and interesting people at teskemedia.com. And finally, a big thank you to Unit Innovations for sponsoring us.
UNIT provides technology solutions to governments in order to progress our largest institutions and society. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'll see you next time.